Hello, It Was Simple listeners. Up next, you'll hear the first episode of Dirty John, Season 2 the podcast, a paid podcast from USA Network. Dirty John Season 2 the podcast is a series paid for by USA Network and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the television series Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story. This series tells the riveting and complex tale of the San Diego mother of four who murdered her ex-husband and his new wife more than 30 years ago. The crime and its aftermath captivated the nation then, yet today it still fascinates people. To understand why the story endures, the creative minds behind the series, executive producer, writer, and director Alexandra Cunningham, and executive producer Jessica Rhodes, explain the importance of the cultural climate at the time, as well as how they approached this complex case so many decades later. Series creator Alexandra Cunningham reveals her earliest memories of the Betty Broderick story. Well, I was first drawn to the story in a way that had nothing to do with writing because I remember it happening when I was a teenager in 1989, pre the internet. It was international news, which should show you how it sort of captured everyone's imagination because it was a lot harder to be international news back then. I really just was fascinated by it in the sense that this woman reminded me of the mothers of my friends, some of whom were divorced, and trying to imagine one of them sort of losing their mind in that way was entertaining because I was a teenager and I had no sense of the world and, you know, no empathy, no uh, ability to put myself in anyone else's shoes. So it was just fun and crazy. Over time, Alexandra Cunningham's perspective on the Betty Broderick case shifted. She read several books written about it. But one, until the Twelfth of Never, left a lasting impression because it captured the unraveling of the Broderick marriage from various sides. Now at a different stage of her own life, Alexandra finds that she connects to Betty's story on a more personal level. I suddenly realized that I had become Betty to a certain extent, that I was now a upper middle class white wife and mother who drove an SUV and for whom the stakes of the story had suddenly become very important uh, and something that I could relate to and imagine happening to myself, but I could not imagine what my reaction would be. And so I suddenly realized that my relationship to the story was completely different and that it was no longer fun Uh, It was more like a horror movie documentary. And so I really now was a writer and was lucky enough to have this franchise into which I felt it folded beautifully. The depictions of the case that I'd seen or heard in the media over the years they all seem to sort of focus more on, you know, the anger and the jealousy and the plot without really spending much time delving into why she felt she had the right to be angry or why the jealousy was so virulent because I felt like I hadn't seen that deep dive into the why. Uh, it was an opportunity for me that I couldn't pass up. Alexandra was joined on her exploration of Betty and Dan's tangled relationship and the murder of Dan and his new wife, Linda Colkenna, by Jessica Rhodes, whose previous producing work on the TV series The Affair and Sharp Objects also allowed her to dive into similar themes about relationships and women. This is Jessica. I think what's so 
much of what the shows explore is not just complex women, but how people and the world react to complex women. All women are complex. (laughs) I think some are just more willing to show it or unable to hide it. Uh, And they're all forced to deal with the world's reaction to it. Besides the many sides of Betty, the series also addresses other important ideas, according to Alexandra. I would say that there are three themes, two of which uh, carry over from last season and sort of make up our franchise for Dirty John, which those two would be Love Gone Wrong. And then the idea of coercive control takes a lot of different forms, like the controlling of finances, the questioning of your behavior, making you live in fear of upsetting the other person or making them angry. And so it is an element of this story uh, as much for how Dan exhibited it in the ways that he did, but more so in how Betty perceived it happening and what it made her do. Another theme is perception is reality because the story we're telling, even though we're presenting multiple points of view and trying to well-round all the characters as much as possible, the narrative that she constructed for herself is the reason that she finally killed Dan and Linda. And so perception is reality became very important to me as a theme because, again, we were trying to delve into the why. As Alexandra crafted Betty's story, finding the actor who could best humanize this complex woman was crucial. Enter Amanda Peet. If she had not agreed to do it after the lunch we had, I don't know what I would have done because everything she said and every question she asked was just, I have to work with this person. She's going to just crush this role. So thank God she didn't have her agents call us (laughs) in a couple hours and say, she really loved meeting you guys. (laughs) So now that I've had the experience of working with her and seeing what she did with this part, I, I just can't wait for the world to see it. I mean, Amanda so fully embodied Betty. She brilliantly took responsibility, I think, of humanizing Betty, helping us chart her descent and and truly understanding how she lost control. It was such a selfless performance. She just dove so much into the role. The actor for Dan Broderick needed to bring balance and appeal to the role. For Alexandra, Christian Slater was the perfect choice. Christian has this sort of basic core of likability, no matter what he's doing or saying, that he brings an empathy to whatever he's doing that I think the audience responds to and makes it relatable, you know, and he's also just an amazing actor. And also he and Amanda have known each other for quite a few years. They've never worked together, but they had a friendly rapport that existed before they came together in these parts. And it really enabled them both to go deep because they felt safe And that was very important because these two characters are locked together in a way that I I don't think either one of them were aware of as it was happening. This sort of spiral that, that they put each other in. And Amanda and Christian were able to do that uh, with each other without destroying themselves for such emotional parts is a danger for actors. For the actors to dive deep emotionally... The writers needed to capture the mindset of both Betty and Dan. Alexandra explains. 
I, I felt that it was important to open the story the way we do in the pilot at a point of great stakes for both the characters so that the audience could get an immediate sense of how wrong things had already gone. But then I, I to tell a story of why this happened, especially from Betty's perspective, I'd, I felt like we needed to see them when they met and got married and follow them through this partnership that Betty placed so much stock in. And also to see why the idea of fairness and what she is owed became so lethally important to her. And I really don't think you can show that without showing what she thinks she lost. To illustrate what Betty perceived was taken from her, the story played out over several decades. This presented a variety of challenges and innovative solutions for Jessica and Alexandra. To tell your production team that you're going to be uh, setting a show in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s without an unlimited budget, and you're going to have to convey this with lighting and costumes and set design and color palette really brings out everybody's amazing creativity. It was actually a challenge to create a language for the production to support Alex's script and also for Alex to write that language in the the notes to production. So we had for both the locations, because we saw them in different phases and different years, we had codes uh, for makeup, hair, wardrobe. For example, we had young Betty, best Betty. You know, there was terms that when used, hopefully they struck a chord between all the departments and, and allowed people a shorthand. The various phases of Betty's life are depicted throughout the series. In particular, the 1980s were significant. But for Betty, less so. Alexandra reveals why. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously, yes, the 1980s did, uh, did feature a lot of major shifts in women's roles, but That's not reflected in the series because Betty, for a lot of reasons, was not a woman who felt those shifts or took advantage of them. Um, Absolutely, she could have, which is one of the saddest elements of the story for me, that if she had been able to focus on the future and her own abilities instead of drowning in her emotional isolation and defaulting to her anger, and this is a thing that anyone who knew her would have said about her, including Dan, that she really could have done anything she wanted, but this is what she did. And what Betty did was murder her former husband and his new bride, Linda Colkena, the woman who had an affair with Dan Broderick. Jessica weighs in. I I do think one of the juxtapositions in the series is Betty who was raised in a time where she really wasn't going to have the amazing career that this woman really could have. And then when we meet Linda, she is being raised in a different time where women can have a role in the workforce and she has a work ethic and shows that. And I think strangely, one of the things the women share, I think Alex would agree is that they could have had brilliant careers. They could have been powerful women. I think Linda and Betty had a lot in common besides the fact that they looked uncannily alike. Linda was a nice, smart, 
hardworking, industrious, pleasant, capable, funny person, just like Betty was. Betty Broderick made the choice to murder Dan and Linda, but the public didn't unanimously vilify her for the crime. Alexandra sheds light on why many women rallied behind Betty. I think she became just a flat-out hero to them. And there were a lot of women writing to her saying, I totally understand you. They clearly did not have all the details. They just knew what they were being told. They felt sympathy for that. They felt that they themselves had been taken advantage of in a divorce situation, that they had been controlled by their husbands, that they understood the anger, that they might have done the same thing, which I think was damaging to Betty's perception of herself at that time, that she felt that she was being told that she was righteous, uh, which I don't think a lot of those people people meant in writing to her in support, but I can't speak for them. But it was important to her to feel that everyone would have done the same thing that she did. And I think she uh, got a misconception that that was true from a lot of the fan mail she was getting. And the fan mail was treating her like a hero. The constant attention from fans and the media, including gavel-to-gavel court TV coverage, greatly influenced Betty. Jessica explains. And I think it starts in the 80s where people learn to speak in sound bites. And Betty learned to speak in sound bites. And there was a positive reinforcement for that with her. It became Pavlovian. And that relationship with the press and what she said and had printed ultimately hurt her. Betty Broderick's story, more than three decades after she became a household name, continues to intrigue. She has steadfast supporters and detractors, and her case remains relevant today. Alexandra and Jessica talk about why. I think it's interesting that we're in a time that we get to re-examine some of these stories that have stayed with us. We sometimes talk about Bobbitt. Um, This idea that in its moment, it was told as a story of that crazy woman and beware of her. Beware of uh, the crazy woman. And it was certainly not the beginning of weaponizing the word crazy, the term, but it became something women were so phobic of becoming that it, it did its job, right? It kept you in your place. The idea for women, whether they're moms or, or in relationships or being told by a parent or being told by an employer or a coworker, like you're being crazy, that's still this gut punch of anxiety and often it makes you act more of the thing that people are reacting to. Um, And so I think that idea of I'm not crazy, I'm reacting to a real thing and I need to be heard is so universal. I wouldn't even say it's just women, but I certainly think women understand it the most. I do think that there's a part of Betty and Dan and even Linda in all of us so that when people learn anything about the details of this story, I think they immediately lock into it in an emotional way. You know, if we haven't been divorced ourselves, we've been cheated on or left or done the cheating or the leaving. We've all had to rebuild our lives and our trust and our senses of self for one reason or another, or we've had to choose sides between people who are doing that while they're demanding our loyalty. 
uh, or all of the above. Um, we've all had relationships and been angry and jealous and, you know, felt despair at the end of those relationships. We all know what it's like to make sacrifices and be treated unfairly by somebody and to feel like we're losing control. And I think that's why the story never truly goes away. The Los Angeles Times newsroom was not involved in this podcast. The two-episode premiere of Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, is Tuesday, June 2nd, on USA Network.